1: That's stamps.com code program. Back in the 7th century, Oxford was little more than a stone castle and a collection of wooden huts set amidst rolling hills, a day's ride west of London. It was there a princess lived. Her name was Frideswide. Frideswide was a girl with strange and magical powers, powers people said had been given to her by God. One time it was said she'd met a little blind girl and laying a gentle hand over her eyes restored her sight. And when Frideswide knelt to kiss a man who had leprosy, his skin healed. So the legend grew. And while Fryswyde's powers were used for good, some whispered they were also used to inflict harm on those who crossed her. A prince who had heard of Fryswyde's gifts, and of her beauty, sent word that he intended to marry her. Fryswyde, a holy woman, uninterested in husbands, rejected his offer. Nevertheless, this prince rode to Oxford to claim his bride. Upon entering the city gates, he was struck blind. Only when he repented and gave up his pursuit of Frideswide was his vision miraculously restored. In time, Frysweide became Oxford's patron saint. If you come to the city, you may visit her shrine. It lies in the heart of Oxford, in a cathedral. The cathedral is in Christchurch, a grand old Oxford University college founded by King Henry VIII. Today Christchurch remains a place of mysterious and fantastical stories, but unlike Friswis, they don't all have happy endings. It's March this year, and I'm in a large dining hall at an Oxford University College. It's packed with people. I look around, lots of them have silvery hair. One of them is me. I mingle and see the men wearing grandfatherly suit jackets, the women cardigans. They cram beside one another on long wooden benches, tucking into tea and cake. It's a very English tea party. The chatter drifts upwards to the rafters and seems to ricochet off the ornate stained glass windows above us. And then a woman gets up to speak.
0: Well, good afternoon, friends, with a capital F and and a small f, and most importantly, Martin and Emma.
1: The very reverend Professor Martin Percy and his wife Emma are sitting at a long wooden table at the front of the room, smiling rather awkwardly.
0: Afternoon tea will be available until uh, 5.45, so you can go back for seconds and a seconds of cake.
1: Martin... Who turns 60 this year is the reason that everyone, including me, is here. It's his leaving due. He is, as I listen in, the Dean of Christchurch. That's the top job, the head of that Oxford College. And
0: so we intend this occasion to be a happy, happy time and not a a time for revisiting the injustices of the last four years.
1: Then a man rises to his feet. And
0: just for any avoidance of doubt, I just want to reassure you all that
1: the sun shines on the righteous. The sun shines on the righteous? The injustices of the last four years? You're probably getting the sense that things didn't, well, didn't end very well for Martin Percy. And you'd be right. For a start, Martin isn't even having his farewell at his own college he's at another one across the road. Why? Because for the past four years, a civil war has been raging at one of the most prestigious universities in the world. Christchurch wanted Martin out. And Martin
2: refused to go. I was committed to the place, committed to the people. I hadn't done nothing wrong and I knew that. They wanted Martin
3: to know how little they thought of him.
1: The college has spent millions trying to get rid of him, so who's at fault and why does it cost so much? Over the next five episodes, I'll be exploring what really happened and I want to know why.
0: She decided to tell me that Martin was in big trouble and it was something to do with money.
2: They're allowing the silence to prosecute you.
0: We need a reset. Does anyone know any good poisoners? Just think of the
1: Inspector Morse episode we can make when his wrinkly, withered little body
3: is found at Osney Lock. I've never witnessed the visceral hatred that was expressed towards Martin.
1: This isn't a true crime podcast series. There are no dead bodies, no corrupt cops. But this is the most bizarre story I've ever encountered in 40 years in journalism, full of twists that shock me.
4: my non-Christchurch friends would send me articles being like, Phoebe, your college in the news again. What is wrong with your college?
1: Stick with me. All will become clear or clearer because an allegation will change everything.
0: The whole thing was weird and creepy. He assaulted me while wearing a collar in a cathedral.
1: Did you touch her hair?
2: No. At all? Not at all. I do think he has absolutely
3: classical signs of what people would probably call a narcissistic personality
1: disorder. And even when I thought this saga was over, I came across a website. I'm frankly concerned that you may have been involved in pursuing her behind a sort of cloak of anonymity. Right. You're listening to The Feud, a podcast series brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Andrew Bellum, a journalist at The Times. This is part one, Down the Rabbit Hole. So it's a, it's a typical afternoon in Oxford, with a little bit of sun, a little bit of blue sky, a lot of clouds. If you go out of the back gate of Christchurch and head south then you hit the river, the River Thames, it's along here that the University Eights do their rowing, they practise for the uh, Oxford-Cambridge boat race, and it's also along the banks of this river, this part, where the former Christchurch maths don, Charles Dodson, told a story to a little girl called Alice, and the little girl called Alice was the daughter of the dean, Dean Little. And the name that Charles Dalton used for the books she then published was Lewis Carroll. It's hard to tear myself from this pastoral yet urban landscape, the birthplace of Alice in Wonderland, a meadow within a city, but I realise I haven't properly introduced myself. My name's Andrew Billen, and I've spent the past two decades writing at The Times. I came to Christchurch myself as an undergraduate almost 45 years ago. I learnt a lot, squandered too much time on student journalism and was very happy here. Fifteen years ago, with my wife and my two daughters, I came back to live in Oxford. But back to where I was a moment ago, right by my old college. And we can also see on the left behind the trees the outlines of the cathedral which is part of Christchurch. In fact, in the sense it is Christchurch. It has its own cathedral as well as his own academic college. And there's Tom Tower from Christchurch chiming. Dining Hall is used in the Harry Potter films as the dining hall in Hogwarts. So it's a kind of magical place. Perhaps in spite of my better inclinations, I've written quite a bit in the Times about what's been going on in my old college. And it does upset many people. In fact, I've asked Christchurch, the other party in this feud, if they would be interviewed for this series, but so far they've always declined. Yet there is something about this scandal I can't look away from. Perhaps, because at its core, it's a story about how we treat one another. And as they say in Oxford, these rows sometimes get very nasty because the stakes are so low. But it's also about how Britain still works. It's about venerable institutions run largely by older, privileged white men who resent being accountable. But you'll come to your own conclusions in due time as this story unfolds. Let's get on with things. I need to introduce you to the man at the heart of it all. A bit tardy. <laughs> just,
2: no. just bumping into everybody left, right, centre on the way down. That's absolutely hopeless. A cup of yeah, yeah.
1: Martin Percy has come to my home, a terraced house just a ten-minute walk from Christchurch. Yeah, where are the kids? Well, Abby's still upstairs. With, uh... He's not a big man. He's short, wiry. In his T-shirt and jeans, he looks more like a middle-aged political activist than Professor Dumbledore. <laughs>
2: oh, too. <laughs> So, I was born in a home for naughty girls, as they were known, in the early 60s in Blackburn and uh, given up for adoption quite early on. My adoptive parents were Liverpudlians. My father's now dead. My mother's still alive. Wonderful, wonderful folks from upper working class, lower middle class stock. They thought they couldn't have children. And um, as soon as they got me, my mother became pregnant. So, my next brother down is 10 months younger. My father had been to Liverpool College, scrimping and saving, but he'd had to leave at 14 when his father died and there was just no money and and gone to work on Liverpool docks. So he was just determined to do better by his children. So what made you want to be a priest? When I was about 16, I wanted to leave school and my parents, in despair, made me do uh, a sort of career test. I didn't want any career at all. I just wanted to, you know, drop out and hang out, really. So they made me do this, and much to my annoyance, it was multiple choice. I was bored to tears. And then my parents got the result of this a couple of weeks later, and it was a sort of personal letter to them. We think your son would be quite good as a teacher or as a vicar. I was livid, absolutely incandescent. I was 16, I wanted to rebel. I mean, these were two conformity roles, which simply didn't suit my vibe, (laughs) as it would have been.
1: The teenage Martin told some of his school powers about these test results. They shocked him by saying they could see it. He'd be a good teacher, a good vicar.
2: So I moved from being furious to begrudging to reluctant to, OK, well, let's give it a whirl, really.
1: But you weren't uh, a reluctant atheist. You did believe in God. I did, yeah. yes. The, the epiphany was about vocation rather than belief. Yes. So Martin, who was devout even from an early age, went to Bristol University in the early 80s to study theology. After that, the rebellious young man had wander through the marketing and advertising world for a few years. But there was no escaping the future foretold by his school careers counsellor, and in 1988, Martin was ordained in the Church of England. It was the same year he met his wife, Emma. In fact, they got engaged on their very first date. A decade and a half later, in 2004, he fulfilled the other half of that prediction and became a teacher. He became Principal Cuddesdon, a training college for priests which sits in a village five miles outside of Oxford. Ten years later, Martin was living a respectable life as a well regarded teacher, minister, and family man. His life, however, was about to change. Oxford's Christ Church was hiring a new dean. It was a big job. A unique one, too. You had to look after a campus and also a cathedral.
2: There would be around about 500 undergraduates, around a couple of hundred postgraduates. Then you've got uh, 65 dons on the governing body.
1: The dons, he means the teachers, the academics.
2: And also... You've got probably somewhere in the region of 400 staff. So you've got the custodians in their bowler hats, you've got the porters, the cleaners. Hang
1: on, I'm just going to pause for a second. Custodians in
2: bowler hats? Well,
1: if you ever find yourself strolling around Oxford and want to pop your head in to look at Christchurch, you're going to be met by men and women in bowler hats and suits, checking what you're doing. It's all a bit odd. Anyway. It's a very rich place, isn't it?
2: £500 million worth of assets. £600 million endowment, which is probably, certainly puts it in the top five of Oxford colleges. And it would turn over in a good year, something in the region of about £30 million.
0: I think it was absolutely unique. I've never been anywhere that resembles it in Oxford, Cambridge or anywhere else. That's Reverend Angela
1: Tilby. She's a regular broadcaster on the BBC. Twelve minutes to eight is the time. Let's turn to Thought for the Day. It's from Angela Tilby, who is the Canon Emeritus of Christchurch Cathedral, Oxford.
0: Good morning. Hilary Mantel's novel, The Mirror and the Light.
1: And she's watched this saga play out from the start. For when Martin was applying for the job, Angela was actually working at Christchurch for the cathedral.
0: I sometimes used to have this fantasy that at night time, when the cathedral was locked up regularly at about seven in the evening. All the old historical ghosts, all the people who'd been buried there, all these people would come out rather like Harry Potter ghosts and fight each other relentlessly until the vergers came at seven in the morning to open the place up.
1: Angela is speaking to me from her home. She's wearing glasses and has short grey hair. Today she's dressed casually. She doesn't have her ecclesiastical dog collar on.
0: There was a lot of hidden history here and there were a lot of dynamic forces that were passed on from generation to another. You see it in in Lewis Carroll in the Alice stories. The sense that everything's just a slightly just slightly crazy and any minute the red Queen coming off with his head. Now I'm not a particularly psychic or charismatic person. I don't I don't have these sort of intuitions about good and evil in that kind of way. But I did feel that we were sort of sitting on something that was really quite tense. And that's why I think when I went home at night in my fantasy, everybody came out and had a good punch up. And then when the crew in the morning, they all went back to their tombs and graves and places where they they resided, which was pure fantasy. But I think it reflected something that I felt...
1: In 2014, Angelo would be on the interviewing panel, and the process was different this time. Normally, the Dean of Christchurch was appointed directly by the monarch. This was the first time the college, which was founded way back in 1546, would choose his own dean in a more open, more democratic process. Candidates would be interviewed by the governing body, who would then make their recommendations to Buckingham Palace. One of those voting was Professor Peter MacDonald,
3: I'm a full-time academic, also a publishing poet, a literary critic, an editor, all those things.
1: Peter, hi. How are you? Yeah. Very well, thank you. Uh, come on
3: through.
1: I've come to see Peter in what he calls his little boat hole.
3: What is this, this is place? My boat hole. And... Yeah.
1: A flat he owns, just a short drive from me in Oxford, where he spends his time writing.
3: I actually use, sort of use this for getting a bit of work done from time to time and is it your place or will
1: you borrow it? Peter is excellent company. Funny, warm, he's got a dark sense of humour. He's a short man, wears rimless glasses and a slightly reddish face with grey hair. And you can also probably hear he's no Oxford native.
3: This isn't the authentic Oxonian twine. I don't think I've got it. No, I was brought up in Belfast and educated there.
1: Even though Peter has been at Christchurch since 1999 and has now lasted three different deans, his origins make him a bit of an outsider. But, outsider or not, as a professor, he gets a vote on the governing body, made up of all the senior college academics. Together they run the college. And this time they would be choosing a dean for themselves an attempt at modernisation, if you like. The four final candidates had two interviews, one with the college side and one with the cathedral. So how did Martin get on?
3: I certainly saw him for the first time during the auditions. I'm sure auditions is the wrong word I'm using. I, I don't mean to imply it was in any way
2: like the X factor, it's a bit like uh, auditioning in a northern comedy nightclub with 65 people passing the microphone around asking slightly odd questions, and you just have to do your best on your feet.
3: Martin certainly came across as an experienced and practical man, as someone who wanted to preserve all that was good about the whole place as an educational institution. Now, that sounds very bland, but of course... The bland line is, in a sense, the correct
0: (laughs) line here. I found him intellectually energetic, enthusiastic. He had a, a charm that was easy to respond to. I
2: really enjoyed the interview. They get the authentic sense of who you are.
0: From what I remember him saying, he thought there were things that could be done to make Christchurch more inclusive. And I think he thought that there might be issues about our finances, because it was obvious that I mean Christchurch is very, very well off indeed, and how that money actually gets spent and and how it's invested. These are very major questions. He didn't suggest that he had any wildly radical views about it, but just that there were things that he expected to be able to look at.
3: So it then comes down to a judgment of character, I suppose.
0: It was quite a solid vote to have him.
3: There were no expressions of dismay when he came through that process.
1: Do you remember how you voted?
3: I'm afraid I do. Yes, I I like Martin. I didn't have him at the top of my list. But I certainly thought he would be competent.
0: Were you happy that he was appointed? Yes, I was. It was something new. So Christchurch were actually appointing somebody that they wanted. But there was an irony, a bit of a
1: dark side to this democratic way that Martin was elected. It was something no one was thinking about at the time, but something that would soon become clear. Because the deans of the past were protected by the monarch, the academics on the governing body didn't really have any authority or control over them. If they didn't like them, or didn't think the dean was up to the task, well, tough luck.
3: So for many times in the, in the 17th century, 18th century even, if you wanted to get rid of the dean, wouldn't you be in trouble with the king, really? And
1: do you really want to do that? <laughs> um, probably not. Anyway, Martin takes the job, and in October 2014 begins as the dean of Christchurch.
2: I felt very happy, a little bit in awe. I did wonder, uh, of course, quite what I'd taken on but I was ready to move, and this felt like a good move.
0: Hi, I'm Manveen Rana, journalist and host of the Stories of Our Times podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times. Every weekday, I sit down with one of the best journalists in the country to talk about the most important story of the day. Whether it's an exclusive investigation, the latest rumblings in Westminster, dispatches from war zones and foreign coverage, or the arts and sport, we bring you the best stories every morning. Subscribe today. Just search The Stories of Our Times wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss.
1: When Martin accepted the job at Christchurch, it came with free accommodation. So that meant he and his wife Emma would have to move into their new home, the Deanery. Now, the Deanery is in Christchurch, of course. In fact, it's on the northeast corner of its main quad they call it tom quad it's large it's beautiful it's a patch of grass in the middle of it is a pond in the middle of the pond is a statue of mercury the roman god of communication and it's surrounded by rooms where well where i used to get taught english and although you enter the deanery through a narrow door it is rather palatial when you get inside and this was now the home for a boy whose father was a docker
2: it's an extraordinary building. I, I remember when I first moved in, I uh, rather naively thought, what I need to do is get some contents insurance for this place. You ring up your insurer and say, we've moved house. The first thing they say to you is, well, can you describe the house? First of all, is it 1700, 1800, 1900 or, or new? So I said, well, it's not new. I said, the, the kitchen and the fireplace is 1525. Oh, we haven't got a box for that. Uh, how many bedrooms have you got? So I said, well... I think if you count them all, including the ones in the tower, I think it's probably around about 14. Actually, our postcode for the back door is different from the front door. It's so, so vast. And Then she just stopped and she said, well, what business are you running there? I said, I'm not running any business there at all. I'm just the dean. Anyway, the the happy outcome of the story is that we agreed that I lived in a terraced house in the middle of Oxford
0: Martin came from a fairly ordinary background. He didn't have ancestral furniture. At one point, I think, he he and Emma said, how are we meant to furnish this?
1: When Martin and his wife asked the college for money to buy some furniture for the deanery, apparently eyebrows were raised. Deans tended to come with their own furniture, probably hailing
0: from the 18th century. It does betray a certain expectation that the dean would be a certain sort of person,
2: The first couple of years felt okay, exhausting, exhilarating, exciting, challenging, stimulating, all of these things. But as time drew on, you became aware of gaps and issues and problems that would need to be addressed.
4: The graduate students, we tend to be kind of isolated and just focus on our studies and our research. And that's really about it.
1: I wanted to understand how students were feeling about Martin's appointment.
4: So when Martin took the job sometime in 2014, it wasn't actually a change that really interested me.
1: That's Stephen DeLay, now an American philosopher. He began a postgraduate degree at Christchurch in 2013, a year before Martin arrived.
4: For a long time, it was almost surreal. I couldn't quite actually believe that I was at Oxford.
1: Stephen's now 36. He's wearing a light blue T-shirt on the video call as he speaks. He's slim. He's got a handsome face, wispy blonde hair. And during the interview, he does smoke a few cigarettes.
4: I came to Oxford almost completely oblivious to so much about what makes Oxford Oxford and also what makes British society British. I was clueless about the class system. I had no idea about the Oxford colleges. I didn't have really an understanding of Christchurch's reputation in
1: Martin's first winter as dean, he invited Stephen to a Thanksgiving event.
4: It was November. It was dark early, and so by the time we reached the deanery, Tom Quad was lit up under the lights, it was fabulous and stunning as it always is. We went to the deanery, and it was a small group, intimate, uh, maybe ten or so students. It was an opportunity for my wife and I to meet other Americans, which was important for us too. So once I had the opportunity to meet Martin in person at dinner, and interact with him around the quad. I found him really, really friendly. And I found him sincere. I slowly came to realize that from a British perspective, he could have been perceived as a bit of an outsider institutionally at the college, but he was very learned and very sophisticated. So from an academic standpoint, I didn't find him out of place and he seemed to get along fine with his colleagues.
1: Of course, Stephen was also noticing the behaviour of the undergraduates.
4: A lot of the students just were more interested in partying, that sort of thing. A lot of kind of shenanigans.
1: Partying undergraduates, I am shocked. Ignore my sarcasm. Around the time Stephen was at Christchurch, the behaviour of some students was, however, starting to hit the tabloids. In 2013, a student brought a flamethrower onto campus and he started firing it Around Tom Quad,
4: When I first heard about what had happened to Tom, I thought it was funny. I thought it was funny because thankfully no one had actually been hurt. So in some ways it, it wasn't a serious incident.
1: The student was briefly banned from
4: Christchurch. I recall the college sending out some kind of notice to everybody because it, it had splashed all over the press.
1: Right, now you may also have heard of the Bullingdon Club, you know, the one where Boris Johnson and David Cameron got up to all sorts. Well, Christchurch has secret dining clubs all of its own. Some of them were pricey, exclusive, invite-only, that sort of thing. And one of them was actually run by one of the Dons.
4: The issue with a society like that, in my view, is that it encourages a kind of sense of entitlement or impunity on the part of those who belong.
1: Then in 2016 came more headlines. A student attended a party dressed in a KKK hood and was banned from future events on campus. Also, an undergraduate was arrested over rape allegations that had been made by a fellow student.
4: These kind of incidents did seem to be occurring more often at my college than at other colleges. On the one hand, Christchurch is where you live and study. And yet at the same time, the very place that you're living and studying kind of takes on this sort of second-order existence where it's in the press. It was kind of alienating.
1: Because of these things, Christchurch built up a reputation for bad behaviour.
2: I think inevitably I felt frustrated that a handful of students could behave so irresponsibly and offensively.
1: Soon an incident would change everything for Martin. It was Christmas time, 2016.
4: It was reported that there had been a stabbing incident at the college.
1: A female student, high on drugs, had attacked a man on Christchurch property.
2: When I got outside, there were three ambulances, a couple of police cars. And Martin was
1: about to find himself at the center of something else. I barely recognise Martin. You look terribly gaunt and thin and pale. That's all next time on The Feud. You've been listening to part one of The Feud. It's reported and presented by me, Andrew Bellen. It's brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. The series is produced by Will Rowe and Brenna Dowdorf. Production assistance and fact-checking is by Constance Kampfner... The executive producer is Lynn Jones and the original music and sound design is by Tom Birchall.